Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And as Ebony stood in the house of the Lord and testified what it was like back in 2008, 2009, and seeing her go through so much pain, such a breaking process, and to see the Lord give her grace through it all, and to be standing here today able to sing and testify about what the Lord can do. Um, I remember those days when she didn't know how her mortgage was going to be paid, but God always made a way, and he kept making a way. And he kept making a way. And to see your daughters. They told me today, Pastor, I have my Girl Scout cookies here. I know you ordered some. <laughs> yes, baby, I got you. But to see what God can do. To not only see Kawanda sing, but to walk off the stage. Come on, y'all. He's been better than good. To see Joyce, who laid her mom to rest this past week, but as she told me this morning, she has a peace that has surpassed her understanding. And, and I thank God for God. He's good. I really don't know how to follow that, except to say thank you, Jesus, that we get to worship together as a family and to experience his presence. That's what the worship leaders pray for, that his presence would enter the house, that it wouldn't be another service, but it, it would be an encounter. Yes. And to acknowledge his holiness and to know that he indwelt this house because we acknowledge that there is none like him. He is distinct, set apart, unique, and as we cried out, we will put nothing or no one before him. And he came and he honored his word, and he worked through broken people. And I pray that you, during that time of worship, not that worship stops, but that time of worship and song, that um, you were able to let him have his way. Whether you were still or whether you were exuberant, that you let him have his way in your life. I want to thank all of you for hanging around last week for the business meeting that we had at the end of the service and to talk about what he is doing and what he is compelling us to do that um, as much as there are many things to celebrate, there are still many things that we must improve upon as a family, as a church with a mission to make disciples and a vision to experience, explain, and expand God's diverse kingdom. But I felt like the overall temperament of the meeting was to go forward uh, in missions uh, to trust God about our financial picture and that he has been meeting our needs. And I want to bring clarification uh, to one statement that I made last week. Um, there was a question about singles ministry. Does Strong Tower Bible Church have a singles ministry? And I answered by saying, no, we've never had a singles ministry. And what I meant to say is that we've never had a sustained singles ministry. Not to the degree that we've had sustained children's ministry, student ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry. Singles ministry has come and gone at different seasons in our church. Um, and so I want to bring clarity to that. But I also believe that because of that question and because singles are coming to our church, that maybe it's time again to ask God, Lord, um, would you raise up uh, another leader or a team of people to help lead and minister to our singles. So uh, if God is stirring in your heart, whether you're single or you're married, divorced, widowed, and you have a heart to wanna help our singles, uh, get in touch with our executive director who will soon be executive pastor, Brother Jerry Lewis. Let's talk and let's pray about uh, the next season. I wanna thank people who've helped and served our singles over our 21 year history. And, uh, and I think it's time for another go at it. Yeah. Also, um, yesterday we got together and we watched the documentary 13 and 
This is my third time seeing it. And this is the documentary that deals with the 13th Amendment as uh, my ancestors came out of slavery and how the 13th Amendment not only legally abolished slavery, but it really opened up the door for a different kind of slavery called mass incarceration. And so um, just watching this documentary was very telling. Um, but our discussion time afterwards made me thankful again that I get to do life with people who are different than I am, people who vote differently than I do, people who have different experiences than I do, um, that we get to do life together, that we can be one without being the same. And our hearts were broken and burdened. And I thank God for Mona. And as we began to pray, Lord, what can we do um, so that we can make a difference in our corner of the world? Um, a great time. Um, we're going to continue to do these kinds of things. I think the next thing coming up is we're going to go to the Nashville Library to learn some of the history about the Nashville sit-ins and how um, God used various leaders here in our own city um, to bring about change and how Martin Luther King spoke so highly of the movement here at Nashville when he visited Fisk University. And he said uh, he, he comes here to get encouragement because there were students getting it done, and one of them happened to be John Lewis. And so such, such a rich history of ordinary people who made themselves available to an extraordinary supernatural God. Great history. So we'll let you know when we'll do that again. And yes, um, Kay invited us today to the Haiti meeting, so come join me and others. My wife and I will be at the meeting. One of us or both of us will go on this trip in May. Um, yeah. And I love Kay bringing a global perspective today. We need to be reminded that the kingdom of God is bigger than our own personal experiences, our local church, and even our country. We need to be reminded of that. Uh, I met a young lady today, Marie, who came to visit us uh, from another church. And she said she was just online. And, and we popped up. And she said, I'm going to come today. And, uh, and there are no accidents with God. And we're so glad she could come because, again, the kingdom is bigger than any one church. Uh, we're all connected by the blood of Jesus. He's the head. We are the body. Many different ex expressions, whether you're here in this city or around the world. And when you meet a believer, you know it. Yeah. You know, you know it. So praise God for what he's doing. So join us today right after church for that Haiti meeting. If you've never gone on a missions trip, this may be the missions trip for you. Um, they have kept the cost way down to make it affordable for us to go. So let's try. And then also in the morning, is Elder Tyler here today? I saw his son leap off the stage. Um, but tomorrow morning, Elder Tyler is heading to Beirut to teach and consult at a medical school there. He'll be gone for the week, so we want to pray for Elder Tyler uh, as he goes because we know he's going to teach more than medicine. We know that brother going to teach about some spiritual medicine too when he gets the opportunity. So we want to keep him lifted up and Teresa and the children while he's gone, that he's covered, that he can know that my church is praying and standing in the gap for me. Um, this is Black History Month, as you know, and Black History Month started in 1926 as Black History, or rather Negro History Week. Uh, historian Carter G. Woodson felt that there was a need for black stories and accomplishments to be told, to be a part of the American fiber of history. And so Negro History Week uh, morphed into and birthed into Black History Month in 1976. And so once again, just a time to call a, attention to accomplishments that sometimes get overlooked, left out, or even rewritten. And so just a great time. And, and, and we, we usually call attention to all of these great men and women uh, of the past, and rightfully so. But I want to make sure in a diverse church like ours that during this month, as we would do during Native American uh, month, or uh, I guess the Irish folk are coming up next. So if any of y'all are Irish, holler at me. We'll <laughs> have some beer or something set up outside for y'all. Uh, I'm just joking. <laughs> some of y'all like, oh, I love this church. <laughs> But I want to acknowledge um, some people today. That's why I'm wearing this tuxedo. Not only that, all my other suits are dirty. So uh, <coughs> Next week, uh, 
I'm going to honor some more people. Today, I'm honoring women from within our church. Next week, I'm honoring dudes, and I'm not wearing a tuxedo for you brothers next week. It's for the ladies. The first lady for Black History Month that I want to honor, um, I'm going to ask Robin Allen to stand right where you are. Let's give Robin a hand, you guys. Remain standing, Robin. Robin is a hero in our midst. She received her Bachelor of Science from Tennessee State University and her Master's from Trevecca Nazarene College. And she has just completed her last class yesterday for her PhD at Trevecca. Pray for her, because she's going to have to defend her dissertation. But she will walk on May 6th, and she'll be the first person in her family to receive an earned doctorate. Uh, she has spent 17 years in education and six years as the assistant principal at J.T. Moore Middle School just down the road. And, amen. <clears throat> And for her second career, she worked after college at Sam's Club until a teacher inspired her. And then she went to get her teacher's license and the rest is history. And she adopted a son at the age of 40. So as she told me, she's a single mom by choice. And she's raising a young African-American male in the fear and admonition of the Lord and making sure that he is being a good student at Hillsborough High School as well as a good citizen. Um, and so, would you guys join me? And, and let me say this about J.T. Moore. She uh, has the title also of helping to instill discipline at the school. And it's not discipline what we would think, but she is in there saving lives, mothering many young people who don't have either a mother or a strong mother at home or a father, and uh, those are like her babies at school. And when I go up there and I see her, I light up when I see her and I know how the students feel. So would y'all help me welcome and bless Sister Rose. You may be seated. And our next person to honor for Black History Month from within our own church um, is a Franklin native and resident. Not many people can say that they are native Nashvillians or native people from Franklin. <clears throat> she was born on 11th Avenue in Franklin in what was known as the shotgun houses. If you go back with us in Franklin before the redevelopment and before the fire station was uh, you know, restructured and everything, there was a row of shacks right there. And she was born in one of those homes. Um, she was born across from the Macklemore House, which is the historic African-American home on the historic Franklin tour. In 1961, she graduated from Franklin Training School, which is now Claiborne Hughes Nursing Home. And this was a school that was um, exclusively for African-Americans. <clears throat> she went to Tennessee Tech and to Tennessee State University and she also did a critical care program through UT Knoxville. She spent 47 years working for the hospital, 37 years as a nurse. She started in critical care, then the last 10 years she's worked in day surgery, and she is still living an abundant, joyful, wonderful life at the age of 74. Help me honor and welcome Ms. Narciss Cheatham. Love you. Stand up. Stand up. Come stand by that balcony. Stand by that balcony right there. Right? Stand by the balcony. Stand. Just stand by that balcony so we can see you. I want you to stand on that corner right there. Right there. Right there. Mm -hmm. don't, don't, like, jump off of there, but just stand... <laughs> Y'all, this is Ms. Narciss. 
And don't she look good? 74, looking good. We love you. She's been a servant in this church for so many years. Quiet, but her presence is felt. We love you so much. And finally, um, this young lady received her Bachelor's of Science from Vanderbilt University, and her degree was in psychology with a pre-dental minor. She holds the distinction of being the first African-American woman to graduate and receive her Master's of Dental Science from the University of Tennessee. She earned her Doctor of Dental Surgery from Meharry Medical College School of Dentistry, and she also earned top honors in the fields of pathology, physiology, and microbiology, as well as the Alpha Omega Award for highest GPA. And then she went on to open her own practice in the heart of downtown Nashville called Braces by Dr. Ruth. Strong Tower helped me welcome Dr. Ruth Ross Edmonds. Where are you, sister? Where are you? Please stand. Please stand. Come on. Yeah. Hallelujah. Praise God for you. Amen. With such a generous spirit. She gives. Whenever we have something going on and we're trying to help some people out, even if it's students at JT Moore, she gives. She'll never, you know, toot her own horn, but she gives, and uh, she's a servant. And, uh, yeah, great people in this church. So, brothers, I'm going to grab three of y'all next week, so watch out. Watch out. So, if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And brother home team, Smith, Homer Homer is going to close us in prayer. Let me talk to you for a moment on unsung Bible stories, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the family of God. As Kay said earlier, Lord, we can be in a crowd but also still feel very lonely. We can feel isolated. Lord, when Ebony testified, I know somebody needed to hear that today because you're no respecter of persons. And what you've done for her, you can surely do for someone here that's hurting. Someone who needs to be reminded that you can open doors that no man can shut. Someone who needs to be reminded today that you can make a way out of no way and you can stand up for those who are single moms you can stand up for those who are disenfranchised, who are hurting. And also, Lord, someone may be here today who they're lost. They're not saved. They're not born again. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in our midst today. And now, Lord, as I attempt to preach your holy word, May Christ be magnified in my body. May he be magnified in my preaching. May he be magnified in my thought processes. May he be magnified in the hearer of the word. And may he be magnified in how we put to practice this word. Thank you, Lord, that Satan is defeated today and that Jesus is Lord. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 is a very familiar story. It's probably the most popular miracle of Jesus because it is found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But not only that, it is probably one of the best-known miracles because Jesus served a large group of people with this miracle. Uh, the Bible lets us know that there were at least 5,000 people when he fed them. 
And the Bible even makes it even more specific that there were 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So there could have been upwards of 10 to 15,000 people that he fed that day. And if you're not familiar with this story, buckle your seatbelt and hang on in there with us. Because today I want to share a couple of nuances of the story that you may not be as familiar with. Yes, we know that Jesus took two fish and five loaves of bread, or as some would say, he took an ordinary fish sandwich and turned it into a Moby Dick sandwich. He has that kind of power to multiply what's been given to him. But before we look at John chapter 6, I want to give you a couple of points from the other gospel writers to help build the context for us as we jump into the midst of this narrative. And keep in mind that the feeding of the 5,000 is different from the feeding of the 4,000. He also fed a whole other large group of people as well. But in Matthew 14, something we learn about the context, John the Baptist had just been murdered. Herod put him to death, beheaded him in jail. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was Jesus' hype man, if you will. He went before Christ and let people know that the Messiah is coming. He baptized people unto repentance, and people would come out into the wilderness to hear this preacher preach. And Jesus said that he was great in the kingdom of God because he chose to be a servant in the kingdom. But not only that, and he went on to baptize Christ, but he was also Christ's cousin as well. So when Jesus got news that his cousin, the prophet, the forerunner, John the Baptist, had been murdered, he wanted to get away to a deserted place. And because Jesus was 100% human as well as 100% God, that mystery is called the hypostatic union, just a theological term to try to explain the godness and manness of Jesus Christ fused together into one nature. Oh my, because he was human, no doubt he wanted to get away to grieve and to reflect. The Bible does say in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. So let's not remove the humanness of Jesus but Mark's gospel lets us know in Mark chapter 6 that the 12 disciples had just returned from being sent out to, and preaching the gospel. They were sent out two by two, Paul Revere. And as they went out, they went out preaching and healing and casting out demons. And when they got back, they were ready to tell Jesus everything that had happened. And Jesus said to them, since I'm already thinking about getting away to a deserted place, why don't all of you join me and let's go to a deserted place? And he said to them, so that you may rest a while. Because ministry wears you out. I know a lot of people don't think that, but it has a way of wearing the ministers out. So Jesus said, let's go away to a secluded, a deserted place. And when the disciples had come back to Jesus, the Bible says in Mark 6 that so many people were coming and going. Because Jesus, I mean, traveling with Jesus was like traveling with the Beatles. People were coming from everywhere. They just had to see him and touch him and hear him. They had hoped that he could heal their loved ones. And so, so many people were coming and going that Mark's gospel says that the disciples didn't even have a chance to eat. Now, make a mental note of that. They did not have a chance to get something to eat. So, Jesus tells them to get into a boat. And they all depart and go across the Sea of Galilee to a deserted place. And so as they're going, the people, according to Mark's gospel, they see them go. It's like, you can't get away from us that easily. So the masses, thousands of people, run around the rim of the Sea of Galilee and beat Jesus and the disciples to the other side at this deserted place. Luke is going to tell us it's called Bethsaida, that they're going to get there before the boat even gets there. And so Mark lets us know when Jesus gets out of the boat, when he sees the people, they're like sheep without a shepherd. 
And because he's the good shepherd, he is moved with compassion for the people. And he begins to teach the people and to heal them of their sicknesses and their diseases. And Mark lets us know that after a while, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, it's getting late. Why don't you send them away so they can get something to eat? Then Luke's gospel lets us know that the deserted place that they went to was Bethsaida, and there were 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So when we put it all together, before we go into John chapter 6, we see that John the Baptist was killed. The disciples returned from ministry. Many people are coming and going. The disciples can't even eat. They depart by boat across the Sea of Galilee to a deserted place called Bethsaida to rest and grieve. However, over 5,000 people run and get there before they arrive. Jesus has compassion on the people, but nowhere does it say the disciples had compassion on them. <laughs> Hang in there with me. Don't go anywhere. And remember, he teaches and he heals. The disciples says, Lord, send them away. So now let's go to John chapter 6. Verse 1, reading from the New King James Version, if you don't have your scriptures, it will be on the screen. It says, after these things, all of those things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Verse 3, and Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Stop and pause. This may explain why so many people were together at one time. Because they're coming or preparing to leave Galilee to go into Jerusalem for one of the three feasts that they would have to make a pilgrimage into Judea for. And so the feast of Passover or uh, um, the feast of unleavened bread, it was also called. So all of these people are preparing to go into Jerusalem for this feast. So it says in verse 5, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, as we study the Bible, one of the best ways to learn the Bible is to ask questions of the Bible. To ask questions when you read it. And so my first question is, why, Jesus, did you focus on Philip that day? You know, so many interactions in Scripture between you and Peter, or you and Andrew and John, but this is one of the lesser-known apostles, and Jesus asked Philip a question. Well, the first thing, I believe, reason why I believe he asked Philip was because according to John chapter 1, verse 44, and John chapter 12, verse 21, Philip was from Bethsaida. So if they're in this deserted place called Bethsaida and Philip is from there and people need to eat and we need to think about having a grocery store run, if anybody knows where the nearest Kroger is, it's going to be Philip. So it just makes sense to ask Philip because that is where he was from. But not only that, Jesus knows his disciples. And he knows, listen to this, that Philip is an analytical disciple. He's the analytical one. Now, there's nothing wrong with being analytical. There's nothing wrong with being a person who has great reason and objectivity. And they like to measure things and see things add up. Because in a moment when Philip talks to Jesus, he's going to know exactly how much money they have in their bank account. He knows they have 200 denarii. And denarii is a Roman coin that was a day's wage. So he may have just looked at a bank statement like an executive director would. That's who you want looking at the bank statements. Someone who's very pragmatic, very sound, very structured, you got to have these kinds of people on your team. And so Jesus talks to Philip because he knows that he's analytical. Remember now, Philip was the one who said in John 1.45, after Jesus had found him, 
he turned around and told other people, you know we found the Messiah, don't you? Well, bro, hold on now. And he says, now, now, we found the one that Moses wrote about, that the law wrote about. So he knew what the scriptures said. And then later in John chapter 14, uh, when Jesus said that he was going to his father, it was the analytical one who said to Jesus in John 14, 8, uh, Jesus, uh, I need some empirical evidence. And, uh, will you show us the father, please? And Jesus says to his analytical disciple, uh, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen who? My father. So that's who he was. And so Jesus is testing him. So you see in verse 7, look at verse 7, verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little sum sum. So Philip's answer again, it was correct. His answer was factual. His answer was objective. He may have looked again at the ledger of the bank statement and looked at the people. 200 denarii, 5,000 people. 5,000 people, 200 denarii. Numbers do not lie. So Lord, in the spirit of the other disciples, send these folk away because we can't afford to feed them. We can't take care of them. Send them away. And... In other Gospels, Jesus says to the disciples, even though Philip is focused on in John, Jesus says, okay, you want me to send them away? No, I'm not doing that. You guys feed them. I know you looked at your assets. I know you added up what you had. But that still does not stop us from the responsibility of feeding hungry people. You guys feed them. And Jesus wanted them to come to the end of themselves so they could come to the beginning of God, where they could look at the bottom line and see, well, we can't do this without a miracle. Well, who are you rolling with? You're rolling with the miracle maker. So we have a dilemma, we have a dilemma. $200, 5,000 people, and might I remind you, 12 hungry disciples. 12 irritated disciples. So we got a dilemma. We got a dilemma. So how do we handle this dilemma? Well, Strong Tower, I fooled y'all. As I was working down this text, I went from verse 5 to verse 7. I went from verse 5 where Jesus asked Philip, how are we going to solve this problem? Down to verse 7, where Philip looked at the situation in the natural only. Strong Tower, I tricked you. I skipped verse 6. I skipped verse 6. Now, before I read verse 6, I'm going to let you know this is what we do. When we're confronted with an insurmountable obstacle, a great problem that is beyond us, we start leaning on our own understanding looking into our own resource bank, trying to figure it out, trying to make a phone call, and we skip verse 6. Can I read verse 6? The Bible says in verse 6, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Oh, my. So we see here Philip is in the test, and Jesus being the master teacher, he has the right to test all of his disciples slash uh, 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 students with a test. But we also see here that the Lord knows what he's going to do beforehand. And he doesn't tell them what he's going to do about the problem. Only he knows what he's going to do. So those three things just jump out at me and give me a moment to break each one of them down. The first thing is that the teacher always reserves the right to test his students Whenever he chooses. Is anybody here a disciple of Jesus? That means you're a student of the master. He is the teacher, capital T. And you can't be a teacher, ain't that right, Robin, without giving a test every now and then. And then you've got some teachers who, they'll tell you when the test season is coming, 
but they'll also surprise you with a pop quiz from time to time. See, a lot of us know there's going to be certain tests that will come. When I go on the mission field, I know there's going to be some tests that will come. When I get married, I know there's going to be some tests to come. It's them pop quizzes that make a brother want to drop out sometimes. I didn't even see that one coming, Lord. Why, Lord? I, I don't think Philip saw this one coming that day. But the teacher said, now, I don't give out standardized tests. I don't give out a one-size-fit-all test for all my students. I'm a personable teacher. I'm a discipler. And so I know that Philip needs this particular test more than Andrew does. I know he needs this more than Peter does. So Philip, how are we going to feed all of these people? Because I'm trying to work on your analytical nature a little bit. Because when Jesus was testing him, he was not testing him to find out how much Philip knew. Jesus knew what Philip knew. He knew what was in the bank account. But this is not a test of intellect. Whenever God gives us a test, it's called a test of faith. And some of us who are smart are too smart for our own good sometimes because we try to figure everything out. And God says there's a, still a, a, a faith element to this walk, no matter how smart you are. And so he was testing Philip's faith, not his intellect. So Jesus says, I'm going to give him a unique test that's designed just for him. Matter of fact, it's going to fit him to a T. It's going to fit him to a T. You've heard that statement before, fit somebody to a T. Well, a T ain't nothing but a cross. So when God gives you a test, again, it ain't standardized, it ain't general. It's unique just for you. You wanted a personal savior? Well, the personal savior gives personal tests. And it'll fit you to a T, i.e. to a cross, because ultimately that's what's going on. You must decrease so that he must increase. You got to die to what you think, what you know, what you want, so that Christ can do what he's going to do. And when you say, Lord, I don't know, that's why the Bible says when you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. So it's not about you. Philip, even though I'm including you in this equation, brother, it's not about you. Because what I'm about to do, which you don't know, is going to bring all glory to me. It's not about you figuring this thing out. No, man, but I'm including you in this process. The teacher has a right to give the tests because he knew that Philip had the tendency of relying on reason primarily and not enough on faith. So I got to send you through a test to increase your faith. And so Philip had to grow because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, that the elders were known for their faith not first and foremost for their reason. And so if he was an elder or an apostle, the Lord is like, I got to help Philip out to grow in faith. Because had they stayed with where Philip was, in the natural only, they would have missed out on the move of God. Because by reason, we can't do anything here. We can't help. But God says, no, I'm here and I'm about to do something by faith. Because if we rely on reason alone, we will stop a move of God. But then secondly, God always knows what he's going to do. God isn't sitting around trying to figure stuff out in time like we do. No, God already knows the end from the beginning. Everything we see, he already saw. It's already done. So he's not a God who's sitting on the throne twiddling his thumbs trying to wonder what's going to happen. He not only knows what's going to happen, he's predetermined what's going to happen, and yet he allows us to enter into that mystery with free will. I can't figure it out, but it's true. That's why Tony Evans says that faith is acting like something is so, even when it's not so, in order that it might be so, simply because God said so. That's faith. It ain't faith till you act on it. It ain't faith till you move. And so God puts us in circumstances, so we've got to move. And Jesus says to him, or rather the scripture says, he himself knew what he would do. The word knew or know there comes from a word that means to have certainty. Jesus knew what he was going to do with certainty. You may not know what to do in your storm, but God knows what to do in your storm. But then thirdly, God doesn't have to tell you his plans beforehand. Remember, he knows what he's going to do. They don't know what he's going to do, and he doesn't tell them 
what, they're go- what he's going to do. Watch this strong tower. He tells the disciples, once they find out, they jacked some little boy for his lunch. We're going to talk about him next week. Jesus, who doesn't tell them what he's going to do. They don't know he's about to feed everybody. They do not know. Jesus says, tell everybody to sit down. And tell them to sit down in groups of 150. So the 12 disciples who are already irritated and hungry. Got to go and divide this crowd of 5,000 plus up into groups because God ain't going to do nothing without order. There's got to be order. So Thomas is over here counting. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 50. Uh, and then James, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 100. And so they're all counting. And, and, and remember, they hungry, it's hot, and they're irritated. They want the people to go home. And here go Jesus wanting to feed them. But again, they don't even know that's what. And, and listen, if you tell people to sit down who hungry, there's an anticipation that they're going to eat. And if they don't eat, they get mad at the people who told them to sit down as if they were going to eat. He hadn't told them what he's going to do. He just said, tell them to sit down. Nobody's ever seen this before. Nobody's ever heard of anything like this before. They have no clue. They are operating by faith. And by the way, had Jesus told them what he was going to do beforehand, they wouldn't have believed it. Let me tell y'all what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that bread. I'm going to take that fish. We don't even need mayonnaise with this. We don't need hot sauce. I'm going to break it, multiply. I'm going to break it and multiply. I'm going to feed everybody out here. There's going to be so much abundance. Man, my father's going to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. We're not even going to have room enough to even eat all of this stuff at this picnic that's out here. We're going to pick up leftovers out here. Had he told them that up front, they'd have been like, no, 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 that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen. And had God told you some of the stuff up front, what he was going to do, you wouldn't have believed him. You wouldn't have went with him. You'd have been like, God, you crazy. That ain't going to happen. When he turned the water into wine, he didn't tell them what he was going to do. His mother said, "Uh, baby, they ran out of wine. Jesus said, woman, what does that have to do with me? Do not try that at home. (laughs) Don't do that. That was a cultural thing. (laughs) He says, my time hasn't come yet. She's like, that's my son. He won't leave me hanging. She says to the servant, "Uh, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Faith. He tells the servants, "Uh, fill them water pots up with water. Doesn't tell him what he's going to do. Then he says, now draw out and give to the master of the ceremony. Again, doesn't tell him what he's going to do. But somewhere between after filling that stuff up and bringing it to the master of ceremonies, the Lord had transformed it from water into alcohol. Wine. Oh, man, I can't chase that. I don't have time. I got to keep going. Didn't tell him. When it was time to raise Lazarus from the dead, he didn't tell him what he was going to do. They walk up to the tomb. Jesus says, now y'all do y'all part, roll the stone out the way. I'll do my part and I'll raise the dead. And, and their whole thing is like, now wait a minute, Lord, uh, he stinketh. <laughs> you sure you want to crack that back, Lord? He stinketh. Because had he told them what he was going to they wouldn't have believed it. So he doesn't have to tell you all the details. He'll give you the direction. You walk in the direction. Act on the revelation you know and watch him give you and entrust more revelation to you. We want the whole plan. No, no, no. He's an intimate God and he wants you to walk with him through the valley of having to trust him because if he told you the whole plan, you wouldn't believe it and you wouldn't get closer to him. He's into the journey and not just the destination. Walk with him through it. Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where we're going, but I'm going to be obedient on what I do know until you show me what I don't know. Oh, my. And I've learned that we all have a tendency of skipping verse 6. When we're being tested, I want to say to you, don't skip verse 6. Don't miss verse 6. Verse 6 is the difference for everything. I'll come back next week and I'll deal with the rest of John. But in conclusion, I want to say to you, when you find yourself in a season of lack, not just lack of money or lack of resources, but lack of wisdom, lack of relationships, lack of direction, 
When you find yourself in a season of lack, remember these three things. God is testing your faith. And every test he gives you, he gives that you might pass, not pass out. You may feel like you're going to pass out, but again, he knows how much you can bear. He knows what you need. He's going to fit you to a T with the test you're going through. So when you say, I can't handle this, God, you're lying on God. God knows what you can handle. Better yet, he knows what you can handle with his help. Secondly, God always knows what he's going to do. Trust that. Jesus said, my father is working and so am I. He's always at work. He knows what he's going to do. He will not be surprised. He knows everything. And then thirdly, God doesn't have to tell us his plan beforehand because he gets more glory this way. So don't miss verse 6. But also, don't miss this miracle. Church, don't miss this miracle. Don't, don't miss verse 6. Next week, I'm going to come back and talk some more, especially about the little boy. But don't miss the miracle. Pastor, what are you talking about? As we close, the disciples, remember? They were tired. They were hungry. They were irritated. Then they had to work out there, counting people. And then eventually, as we'll see next week, they had to give the food to the people. Then after the people ate, they had to then pick up what was left over. There were 12 baskets. That's what the Bible says. One for each disciple. And the word basket there speaks of a word that's, that's like a knapsack that every Jew would carry when they would travel from Galilee to Judea. So they would have a knapsack or for some of you older folk, a fanny pack. So, so they would put that grub in that. So Jesus said, I know y'all serving. I know you're tired. I know you're hungry. I'm going to bless the people first. But afterwards, I got something for y'all. Each one of y'all got enough to put into your knapsack. So the Bible lets us know, though, that the disciples missed this whole miracle. Pastor, how do you know? Mark chapter 6, verse 52. They were in a storm. Because Jesus told them to get in a boat and go. They got into a storm. Jesus walked in the water, came to them, got in the boat. And the Bible says in Mark 6, 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hard. A great miracle happened that day. And you know when people eat, they get happy. Just like you're about to eat and be happy. I've seen marriages on the brink of great cataclysmic issues when one of the partners come home and there's no food in that house. You want to fight? You hungry? And you thought there was going to be some food there? Lord, have mercy. So these dudes are struggling. They missed the miracle because their hearts were hard. What was there to understand about the loaves? Immediately we think, oh, the miracle of the fish and loaves is that God provides. Yeah, 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 that, that, that's true. But the reason why God provides is because God loves people. So the miracle or, or what they missed in that miracle was that God loves people. Hungry people, hurting people. They missed that because they were upset at those people. So their hearts were hardened. Because they were upset with the people. Because had these people just left us alone, we could have had our time with Jesus. We could have all eaten, man, but here they are messing up my time. But I want to say to you that their issue was not primarily with the people. Their hearts were not hard at the people. Their hearts were hard at Jesus. Pastor, why you say that? They're mad with Jesus and it shows up in how they treat people. But they're mad at Jesus because if Jesus was really good and if Jesus really understood, Jesus would have sent them people away and they would have had time to rest and just be with him. But he get out the boat having compassion on them. He want to teach all day. He want to heal everybody. He want to feed everybody. Their hearts are hard, not first at the people. Their hearts are hard at him. And I think we got some people here. You're mad with people. 
Your hearts are hard towards people. But if we dig a little bit deeper, it's not really the people. It's God who hasn't done what you thought he should do or what he should do. You're mad with him. But since you can't put your hands around his celestial invisible throat, you take it out on people. Strong tower. God is doing a work here. And he allows lack. We're in a season of lack. We've been in a season of, of plenty. We've been in seasons of lack. It's been the same Lord through every season. And the reason why I came out of the meeting last week wanting to preach this message out of the family meeting is because I don't want us to look at the red numbers and look at the bottom line and look at, oh, we don't have, we're falling short. Okay, yeah, that's a fact. But what about faith? Who are we rolling with? He's never seen a storm that he couldn't get through. What is this? This is nothing to him. So when he asked Pastor Chris, what are we going to do about this situation? We want to hire a student ministry. We don't have the money. We want to have a honors. We don't have the money on paper. But my father is rich in houses and in land. It's not about the money. He can get money up in here anytime he wants. He's after the experience of intimacy with his people. He wants us to please him by our faith. So that's why the elders can say, we're not panicking. We're concerned. We're analytical. But the elders shall be remembered by their faith. Watch God come through. Watch God do something. But in the meantime, Lord, guard me from a hard heart. Because I don't want to miss this miracle. Forget the miracle in the church. The miracle you're doing in my family. I don't want to miss that miracle because I got a hard heart. The miracle you're doing on my job, at my school. I don't want to miss what you're doing. Because when your heart is hard, you can't see God. So today, some of us might need to repent of being angry with God. Because he made me work in the kitchen, Martha. Lord, if you can, you, you, you tell Mary to come in here and help me. Honey, you're worrying about too many things. Only one thing is needed, baby, make a casserole. I didn't tell you to make all that stuff. You mad at Mary? You mad at me? Some of y'all mad with Pastor Chris, mad with the elders. Mad with the ushers, mad with the worship, mad with this. Y'all let it go, let it go. Oh, I, what that song? Let it go. <laughs> Stand to your feet and let's pray. Brother Homer, come on, man.